Well, good morning. Welcome. Welcome to the Tabernacle. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors, and it is Easter Sunday morning. Are you fired up to be here? I am as well. We especially want to welcome those who are uh, maybe trying out church for the first time or you were an invited guest, uh, uh, those who are watching online, and especially our friends in Manistee. It was uh, great to be with you on Good Friday. And since it's Easter, uh, which is kind of a big deal, uh, what I thought I'd go ahead and do is we want to talk today about the most polarizing figure in human history. The most polarizing figure in human history. When I say polarizing, I'm talking about uh, uh, there's two polar opposite views. And there's a lot of polarizing subjects and polarizing topics or people, things in our culture. We live in a polarized culture, do we not? Where we have these extreme views. You either love something or you hate it. And there's very little room for neutral ground. You know, some of the things, uh, uh, you know, I was thinking about this week are common to us, right? So a polarizing figures in sports, right? If you're a football fan, a polarizing team would be the Dallas Cowboys. You either hate them or you can't stop talking about them, right? A polarizing college football team, Notre Dame, let's be honest. They're God's team and some of you guys can't handle that. <laughs> and they have their own TV contract and you, you, know, you don't like that. Well, sorry, Michigan State, you need to play better, right? But there's polarizing things, right? There's, there's polarizing fashion. We're polarized about our view of the footwear known as Crocs, right? Some people think they're to be encouraged at all times. A young lady backstage this morning told me that some of you abuse your privileges when it comes to Crocs, but they can be polarizing. I've never had a pair on in my life, but I'm, I'm, maybe I'm kind of neutral about Crocs. The mullet is polarizing, the hairstyle. Kids last night at the bonfire that that we had at our house were like, no one likes the mullet. And I said, well, there's still people rocking it. And so someone's given them that mullet. So someone's okay still with mullet, but we have extreme views about the mullet. In music, let's be honest, the most polarizing band in human history, Nickelback. You either love Nickelback or you can't handle Nickelback, right? In food, pineapple on your pizza. Yeah, I say bring it. I'm not ashamed, right? If it's pizza, as long as there's not broccoli on it, right? But there's people with extreme views about you cannot do that to pizza. And then there's other people like me, human garbage cans that just say bring it on, right? And since it is Easter, and I don't want to be controversial, I'll just say the most obvious one, is we're polarized about U.S. presidents. Oh, it got quiet. <laughs> Doesn't, I mean, it matters not which party is in power. You either love that guy or you hate that guy, right? And, and we take extreme views, and there's very few neutral grounds. Well, it's probably obvious who I'm talking about today. The most polarizing figure in human history is Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, well, there's some people that might just be ambivalent towards him. But the problem is with Jesus is he doesn't leave room for ambivalence. He doesn't leave room for you either love him or or, or just kind of like, well, I'm kind of neutral. I can take him or leave him. There's no room for that. The lines that Jesus drew, 
he made very clear statements. In fact, here at the Tabernacle, we're just finishing up a series called the I Am series where we know that Jesus was a real person who came and and he was God in flesh and he taught us how to live. He taught us how to love. He declared seven different times in the gospel of John that he was God using the statement, I am. That was the same name that God gave to Moses when Moses had asked God in the book of Exodus, what is your name? He said, I am that I am. And then Jesus in the gospels claimed that name. And then Jesus showed us what love is and how much God loves us by dying on a cross for our sins so that we don't have to be separated from God, that we can know God and we can love God and we can worship God. We can devote our life to him. And you see, if we don't do that, the only other option with the I am that is Jesus is to hate him. Because anything short of worship, anything short of love, For the son of God is hatred towards God. There's no middle ground. He's a polarizing figure. Make no mistake. The good news is, is that he didn't stay dead. He died for our sins. But what we we celebrate on Easter is that he came back to life. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. He was resurrected, the first of the resurrection from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven. And that's the Easter story. And there's no bunnies in it. Or eggs, for that matter. Although someone offered to bring me deviled eggs this morning. I wonder what it was like to see the risen Christ. It says that when the tomb, uh, when they first visited the tomb, it was women who first saw the risen Lord. He appeared to them first. He appeared to his disciples. And then he appeared to over 500 at one time. Over the period of 40 days. And it dramatically transformed people's lives. And this group of people, the early Christians, transformed human history. They changed the calendar. The whole BC, AD changeover was because of Jesus, right? And I've wondered what it must be like to have seen the risen Christ. I've spoken with people that have said, I imagine if I saw the risen Christ, that maybe my attitude towards him would be different. Like if I saw him with the, with the nail-scarred hands and, and, and the, the scarred back and, and the piercing in his side, oh, then I would believe. I wonder what it would be like. And so because it's Easter and we're coming to the end of the I Am series, it just made sense to me that our Easter passage for 2023 is in the book of Revelation. We're going to go there, Right? So if you have a Bible or a flat screen, if you turn to Revelation chapter one, I just want to share four verses with you and then we'll make some observations of how this polarizing figure, Jesus, how it impacts our life and what it might or must be like to see the risen Christ. So we're in Revelation chapter one and we'll start in verse seven. And and this guy, the same guy who wrote the gospel of John, the apostle John, wrote another book, well, actually wrote four other books. Uh, They're very creatively titled, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. His name is John. He wrote the book, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he wrote Revelation. And it was this vision that God gave him of the end of all things. It's this vision that God gave him, and he recorded for us so we can know what it was like or what it will be like. And every day we're alive, we get closer to that date. And so this is, this is what he writes about the second coming. 
Revelation chapter one and verse seven. It says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. So it starts out with an I am statement. And so you you probably heard us say, well, going through the gospel of John, we're gonna look at the seven I am statements of John. Well, this is like the movie with the bonus materials. There's another I am coming and John wrote it, but it was in his other book and it's in Revelation. And he says, I am the alpha and the omega. In the Greek alphabet, that's the first and the last letter. He is saying, I am the almighty one. I was here before time began. I will be here forever and I'm everything in between. The I am that I am, the almighty God is Jesus. He was the one who said, I am the bread of life. He is the one who said, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gate. No one comes in except through me. And then here at the end of all things, he says, I am the alpha and the omega. In the next few verses, uh, verses nine through uh, 16, John gives us a description and it's apocalyptic. And in the interest of time, I'm not gonna read all of it. I encourage you on Easter maybe to take some time because it's, it's pretty epic. It says that the son of man comes, he's clothed in a robe, he's got a golden sash, The hairs on his head are white like wool, bright as snow. His eyes are flames of fire. His feet are burnished bronze. His voice is the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. Out of his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword and his face shines like the sun, like you're staring into the sun. And then in this apocalyptic vision, it goes on in verse 17, John gets real personal. So if you're wondering what it would be like to see the risen Lord, here we go. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died And behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is God's word. And this I am statement is probably the most powerful. The alpha and the omega is the first and the last, but it's not just the first and the last. He says, I'm the living one. I am the present. He's our past. He's our present. He's our future. He's forevermore. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. So what will it be like to see the risen Lord? Well, the first thing that I see, the first observation out of this Easter slash revelation passage is this, and it's a promise, is that everyone will see the risen Jesus. Nobody misses out. 
You know, it's easy to think, well, I was born in the wrong time, in the wrong place. I'm in 2023. I wasn't there in 33 AD, you know, when, you know, Jesus walked the earth and died and I could have been one of the people that saw him. Here's a promise. It says when he comes, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Every eye, not just Christians. Because the very next verse says, even those who pierced him, those who killed him, those who didn't believe in him, those who mocked him, those who had him killed, his enemies. It includes those who love him, those who hate him, and those who are kind of neutral about him. It says every eye will see him because everyone will see him. Now there's something else, and I, I don't want to just put fear in people's hearts, but it's Easter, I'm a preacher, I got to speak the truth. And we don't believe there's any wasted words in scripture. And so if we look in here, it says, all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Have you ever heard someone wail? Have you ever wailed? Some translations say mourn. There'll be a mourning. There's a wailing. And I thought about that. Why why will people wail? Well, I think some of it is conviction. Conviction. Some of it is just sheer terror. Some of it is obviously going to be people that that, that didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that moment, it's like the scales will fall off our eyes. All the doubts will be gone. There is the risen Lord coming on the clouds. And the only response is to wail. But there's also this universal kind of collective wailing because the reason Jesus died was because of me. The reason Jesus died is because of you. The best person in this room, the best person in Manistee or listening or watching online, the best person, the most upright and moral person is still a sinful person. And for that, Jesus died. And so there's this collective, oh no, it's true. He's holy, I'm not. He's good, I'm wicked. He's pure, I have sin. He's perfect and I'm lost. It says, all the tribes will wail on account of him. And then we hear the voice, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, it's interesting that John tells us what his response is. Now, John believed in Jesus. John loved Jesus. In fact, John was very fond in his gospel of referring to himself in the third person. He would just say, the disciple Jesus loved. It doesn't mean that Jesus loved him anymore. It means he got to write the book and make himself kind of look good. No, I don't think that's a good theory at all. I think he was so overcome by the love of Jesus, the one who he shared three years of his life with, who taught him everything about God, who washed his feet at the Last Supper, who gave his life for him. John was the one that Jesus entrusted with caring for his mother after he was gone. Those of you that know the story, remember that Jesus hung on the cross and and John was there with with Mary, his mother, and the other Mary. And he said to John, behold your mother. And he said to his mother, behold your son. Saying, hey, John, I'm going to trust you. So what I'm trying to say is John was close to Jesus. John saw the risen Jesus. John was there when Jesus ascended into heaven and then all the dudes were staring there with drool coming out of their mouth and the angel appeared and go, what are you looking at? The same Jesus is coming back and this is what we're reading about. So he knew all about Jesus, loved Jesus, had a relationship with Jesus. 
He was a believer. He was an apostle. He suffered for Jesus. He was a part of the whole book of Acts thing, turning the calendar over. This is John. Are you with me so far? What was his response as a believer? I felt down as if I was dead. You know, some of us have this idea of the second coming and the risen Lord will be like, oh, this will be something cool to see. No, there's going to be wailing. And even though, for those of us that love him and worship him, we'll fall down as if we are dead. Imagine what it'll be like for those who hate him. Imagine what it'll be like for those who are kind of take him or leave him. And my guess is if you're in church on this Easter, you don't hate Jesus. At least you don't think you do, but you can kind of take him or leave him. He doesn't leave room for that. He doesn't leave room for the little mushy middle. He just doesn't. Now there's good news for John who he didn't die, but he fell down as if he were dead because here's the living proof that he is the I am. And all of that conviction, it says, but then he put, or he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. So if you're a Christian who loves the Lord, I'm not trying to put fear into your heart. I mean, that's the natural response to God is to fall down in that moment, seeing him in his glory. But then will the hand of comfort ride on your shoulder? Imagine it was Jesus saying, hey, John, it's me. We're good. Fear not. But will his hand rest on your shoulder? Everyone will see the risen Jesus. There'll be conviction. And for those who love him, then there'll be comfort. You see, the truth of the matter is that the Bible says in Philippians chapter two is one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We won't confess any other name. We won't confess our favorite teacher, our favorite author. We won't confess our favorite church or confess our favorite ministry. We won't confess uh, Buddha. (laughs) We won't confess Muhammad. We won't confess any other dead religious leader, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, here's the deal. We either do that in this life of our own volition or we will be forced to our knees in the next. Which way will it be? Everyone will see the risen Jesus. If you're a skeptic and man, you just want proof, you'll have it. You'll have it. But you either take his word for it now or you'll see it. Everyone will see the risen Jesus. And then the second thing I think it's important for us to see is, you know, after he repeats this idea that he's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the living one, he declares, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And if you're wondering why we chose Revelation for Easter, that's it right there, that statement. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And you hear us say things like Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death by dying on a cross, meaning Satan wants to kill and destroy. Well, he thought he'd killed and destroyed Jesus, except Jesus didn't stay dead. So he defeated Satan. He defeated sin because sin eternally separates us from God. Sin is the reason that, that, that we medicate. Sin is the reason that we're forever moving from thing to thing, trying to find fulfillment. Sin is the reason that we don't find satisfaction. 
because this world will never completely satisfy. We just get little glimpses. But he defeated sin by paying for my sin, the sin that I can't pay for. And I can't earn salvation. I can't pay it back. And then he defeated death. How did he defeat death? Well, that's obvious. He came back from the dead. Dead couldn't keep him in the grave. Are you alive? Do you have a pulse? Jesus does. What did that victory win? That's the last thing. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. So not only will everyone will see the risen Jesus, the reason it's important is because Jesus holds the keys. Jesus holds the keys. Hades is a, a, a Bible word for the place of the dead. Another word you've probably heard if you're from the Christian ghetto is Sheol, right? So he's saying, whatever that is, that fearful door that every single one of us will walk through and will walk through alone. And if we don't walk through it alone, it's because of the second coming, which could happen at any moment from here until forever. But that fearful door that everyone must walk through alone, Jesus says, I have the keys to that door. I hold the keys to death and to the place of the dead. That was part of the victory that he won. By defeating Satan, sin, and death, he holds the keys now. Satan held the keys before. Sin held the keys before. Death is that fearful place. And now Jesus says, I hold the keys to that. What does that mean for us? This is why we either love him or hate him. If I love him, the one who has the keys, that means he can unlock death for me and seal me for eternity. He can set me free forever and ever. But if he holds the keys, what do we do with keys? We lock or we unlock. That also means he can lock me in death and utter separation from him forever. Jesus holds the keys. Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades, but that also means Jesus holds the keys to life. Some of us, we're raised in the church and then we run away from the church because we think somehow that we can go find the keys and unlock life for us. And then somewhere in our 30s and our 40s, when we figured out that we don't have it all together, we come crawling back, don't we? And realize we didn't have any keys at all. We stole some keys and, and, and took Jesus' car on a joyride and crashed it. The good news is he welcomes us all home. Jesus holds the keys. Friends, in Acts chapter four, we're reminded that, that there's no other name under heaven and earth by which someone can be saved. And that's not just for eternity. That's for right now. Some of you are looking for salvation right now and you're looking for it in the wrong places. You're looking for it in her. You're looking for it in him. You're looking for it in them. You're looking for it in, in, in things. You're looking for it in trying to create a life for yourself and you wonder why nothing satisfies is because you're using the wrong key and you're looking for salvation in all the wrong places. It's only through loving Jesus and everything that comes with that. Loving him means to worship him. Loving him means to serve him. Loving him means that that's not just a one-time thing, that it's on the regular thing. Loving him means every minute of every hour, of every day, of every week. Does that mean I gotta go 
to church all the time? No, it means you get to go to church all the time. So your built-in forgetter will correct you. Some of us see this as a duty. Jesus wants us to desire him. He holds the keys. No one else holds the keys. You can't earn them. You can't rip them off. You can't go down to the hardware store and have a little master one made. He holds the keys. To death, to Hades, to life, to salvation. This is good news. Now, the bad news is that none of us get out of here alive. That's the deal. From the first man, the first Adam, that's what we've inherited is death. And so we have an option with this polarizing figure. We either love him or we hate him. Because on that day, you don't get to fall down dead and then go, hey, I was kind of neutral. I mean, I didn't hate you, but you know, I'm kind of okay with you. Doesn't work. He doesn't leave room for that. He doesn't leave room for that. It's frightening the things that the I am said about the end of all things. When he says on that day, many will say, but, but, but I did know you. Look at all the things that I did in your name. And even people in ministries are going to be told, depart from me because I never, I never knew you. So here's the question. How will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus? If you don't love Jesus, worship Jesus, serve Jesus, how will you respond to Jesus? The time is now. The day is today. The hour, you're sitting in it. It's this moment. You either choose to love Jesus, ask him to come into your life, or you will align yourselves with those who hate Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. The time is now. Maybe you're neutral. You're like, look, I'm a Christian. I did the thing. I even got baptized. But right now, you know, it's really busy. My life, my life, blah, 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 freaking blah. Tired of it. There's no middle ground. He's the most polarizing figure that's ever lived. You're either with him or you're not with him. You're either for him or you're against him. How will you respond to this Jesus? Romans chapter 10 gives me great hope. It says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But you see, there's two parts to that. There's the confessing with your mouth and there's a lot of people who confess Jesus is Lord, but they don't believe in their hearts that God raised them from the dead. They confess with their mouth to kind of get mom off their back or they confess with their mouth so they can kind of sleep at night. The problem is, is the more I think about Jesus and what he did for me, I can't sleep at night because I'm overwhelmed with my own sin. I'm overwhelmed with the fact that I'm so undeserving That's my motivation to suit up and show up week in and week out for the king because I believe in my sinfulness and I believe in his holiness and I believe that I deserve the cross and I believe that he did not, but he took it for me. That's changed my life. And so there's many here today that you come to this church every week, but you've never really believed There's many who are watching or listening that that say that, you know, maybe you've confessed, but the believing is you're willing to stake your life on it. 
You're willing to respond with your whole life. Here at the tabernacle, we call that giving him your yes. I wonder, would you give Jesus your yes today? And I'm not just talking to people who aren't Christians. I'm talking to people who maybe consider themselves Christians, but they're not really giving Jesus their yes. They gave Jesus their yes once, but now they're living like it's no. So how will you respond? You either love or you hate. There's no neutral. And God will honor what you choose. He's a respecter of persons. He will force none of us to love him. It's not a strong arm tactic. He will honor what you choose. So I'm gonna invite the bands to come. I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads with me and take a moment and ask yourself, how will I respond to Jesus? This one who we're promised that every eye will see we will see the risen Lord one day. Whether you believe it or not, you'll see the risen Lord. And he is the one, the risen Christ, who holds the keys to everything. He will honor if you dismiss him. He'll honor if you choose to go your own way. But what would it look like for you to respond to Jesus and give him your yes? Lord God, I pray right now that your spirit would convict hearts in a way that only your spirit can. God, I pray for those that don't know you, even in this moment, they would give you their yes. They would ask you to come into their life, to cleanse them from sin. They would confess your name and then they would believe by the way they lived their life from this point on. God, I pray especially for those who've had a neutral attitude towards you, Jesus. It's probably the vast majority of us that instead of, of, of thinking that we can okay with like, that we would realize that only love will do. God, will your spirit convict us as well? And those who have been far away, will they give Jesus their yes again? And help us, God, to give you our yes tomorrow and the next day and next week because you're the only thing that's worth it. You are the alpha the Omega, the Almighty, the Everlasting One, the Holy One. Jesus, thank you for what you did on the cross and for the resurrection. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.